Welcome to another exciting episode of The NIDS View, a weekly show of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies, where we are advancing peace, promoting stability, and helping you to think deterrence. Each week, we discuss and analyze a recent topic and provide insight into how it affects our national deterrence. We hope you enjoy this show. Welcome back, of course, to another great episode of The NIDS View. I'm Adam Lowther, and I'm with Curtis McGiffin and Jim Petrosky. Howdy. Gents, thanks for, for being here. It's exciting here. to be here every time. <laughs> Today, we're going to talk about something. You know, we do have a an email address, so for those listeners who have questions, uh, we, we get those questions, and sometimes, you know, we'll respond with emails to answer your questions. But in this case, yeah, so not in this case, we got something at nids at thinkdeterrence.com. And one of our listeners posed this question to us or asked us to review this article. I'll also mention, Adam, that if someone wants to get into a dialogue with us, they can get into our X feed at think deterrence is our handle and they could get in our X feed and actually have a dialogue with someone because we update that daily. So there's multiple ways to get in contact with us, just like this article. Back to you, Adam. Yeah. So we had one of our listeners said, Hey, would you guys review and talk about a recent publication? And so Greg Weaver, many of you might know Greg Weaver. He was the uh, the J5 at Stratcom, and then he moved to the joint staff. So he's had a long career, and now he's retired, and he's affiliated with the Atlantic Council, and he wrote an issue brief called The Role of Nuclear Weapons in a Taiwan Crisis. And, you know, one, one of you, the listeners, said, hey, would, why do you guys need to talk about that that article and then that topic? And so that's, of course, what we're going to do today. We listen to our audience. And so the, the, you know, Greg's issue brief was was a good one. And essentially, he covered what it what it would mean. What would the implications be of a China U.S. conflict over uh, and a, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, essentially, and if that escalated to nuclear use, and what would be you know the sort of the big issues there, what would be those problems? And in fact, you know, one I'll quote from the article: CIA Director William Burns noted that PRC President Xi Jinping has directed the Chinese military to be prepared to invade Taiwan by 2027. So it's it's not that this is sort of a crazy, you know, off-the-wall idea. It's something that we know is happening. We know China's preparing. And, of course, we also know that China is in the midst of a nuclear breakout. They've got the 300-plus the ICBM silos that they've built. We're seeing them put new DF, what we think are DF-41s, which can be MIRVed. How, how many uh, warheads can we put on a DF-41, Curtis? I don't remember offhand. I know it's somewhere between well, 5 they, and 10, uh, I think. <clears throat> the DOD keeps saying 3, but there are plenty of references out there oh, that three. are up to 10. Okay. So maybe they're saying 3 is the optimum number, but we, you know, because you lose range, so maybe they wouldn't want to put more than that, but at any rate, uh, so Greg 
in the article talks about the challenges of an amphibious assault and the difficulty of that. Let's suppose it's 2027 or after, and that, you know, this is a, you've got a island nation of 25 million people, essentially with a 170,000 man military, a hundred or 1.5 million reservists. You've got a, Chinese military that's unproven. And so you see that there's a lot of uncertainty for this. And with that uncertainty could come the potential risk for an escalation to nuclear use. You know, the U.S., let's say the U.S. gets involved, perhaps the Japanese support. We're flying bombers out of Australia. I don't know, maybe the Koreans and in you know the Philippines support, this could potentially go badly. And so one of the things that Greg says is that deterrence, that there's sort of two roles that deterrence would provide, that it would, one, seek to deter the United States and its allies and partners from intervening in the conflict. That, that would be one role for Chinese nuclear weapons. They would seek to prevent U.S. nuclear coercion, by credibly deterring U.S. nuclear use against the Chinese mainland. So the U.S. can't threaten China with nukes. And the third main point here was that deterring U.S. limited nuclear use to defeat a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. So stopping, you know, using their weapons to stop the U.S. from from preventing their invasion through nuclear use. Now, gents, he goes on to talk about the tactical employment of nuclear weapons and how China might employ tactically and then how the U.S. might employ tactically. But rather than continue the description, I want you guys to jump in with some of your initial thoughts. Curtis, you're shaking your head, so why don't you jump in first? Okay, Adam. Well, thank you very much. Jim, good to see you again. Uh, let me start off by saying um, I, I think I've met Greg once or twice in person. He is a brilliant gentleman who's been in this business a long time, and he's definitely be thinking about this uh, this issue and, and these issues for a lot over the past decades. And so I'm glad he wrote this piece. Um, it's a bit challenging to read. I mean, it's 17 pages if you print it out. It's a big article. Um, and, uh, uh, but I, let me just add to, uh, your discussion here. Um, there's lots in here to love. I, I'm more of, I guess, you know, Jim always accuses me of being the pessimist of the group, right? I'm the, I'm the naysayer of the group, I guess. And, and so I kind of like to pick things apart and, and sort of reverse some of my thinking. You mentioned the three issues here, the three roles of the PRC's nuclear forces. And I, I think, the way he described this is a is a bit a bit of a downplay here, and I, I want to I want to sort of fluff this up a bit in this sense, uh, deterring the United States and or its allies and partners from intervening in the conflict. Okay, is the first role of their nuclear weapons. So this implies several things here from his statement. First of all, it implies that our allies are going to be interested in actually getting engaged. Uh, in this conflict, and they may or they may not. Are they willing to take a nuclear strike on their land, even if it's to attack bases or or facilities that are American? Um, I think that that question's a difficult one to ask and answer uh, with regard to getting any 
real answers and it it probably is it depends but this is all the this the idea is is that this is about their nuclear coercion of us to coerce us into not engaging to to, to protect and defend um these these the three things that greg rightly identifies that are at risk if a war occurs and Adam, I'll just I'll just read these here for you. Basically, I kind of condensed them down here. But uh, an invasion of Taiwan damage and and a failure of the U.S. or how the U.S. responds uh, basically damages it has a potential to damage U.S. Rep, uh, uh, reputation as as a uh, as a superpower, right? If we choose not to do anything, that's one thing. If if we get engaged, but we get engaged late, or we get engaged sort of kind of partially. Um, what does that say to the rest of the world? The second one is that it will cause severe economic disruption to the global economy. There is no doubt about that. We know about Taiwan and its chip manufacturing. The, the, the microchip that it produces isn't produced anywhere else in the whole world. That is its commodity. And, and it is why uh, Taiwan has deliberately not allowed those chips to be built anywhere else. And, and there's two risks there, right? Either it all gets destroyed in the conflict or the Chinese actually, the PRC actually gets it in a successful invasion and they could then control that technology. Both of those are bad answers, right? Bad scenarios. And then the third one here is that it damages the rules-based international order that currently exists. Now, we know the Chinese and, and the Russians and others are not interested in keeping the current rules-based international order. So this is something that they're interested in doing. It's sort of a second-order effect uh, if they are able to, to take the island. But the idea here is, is that acknowledging that the PRC's nuclear forces are designed to coerce America and its allies from not engaging, not getting involved in this conflict is the ultimate goal and purpose, not only of, 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 uh, of Chinese nuclear forces, but of the rapid expansion of Chinese nuclear forces. I'll stop there. Yeah. Jim, did you want to jump in? Yeah. I'm not sure I have much to add from Curtis. He gave a, a sort of a, a additional information on this, on this article. And, um, it's a lot to wrap your head around. It's a it's a, a deep article, um, so let me let me throw my and and it scares me, Curtis, because you and I sort of approach this the same way. Like, let's ask a couple questions and then right. see what we can answer from it. And aside from that, I always say you're a pessimist regarding everything that's done to reduce our nuclear arsenal. That's what the and 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 I do think you you believe everyone's out to get it, and I'm not quite quite certain that you're wrong in that. But anyway, <laughs> so uh, so we'll have to convince each other on that. But let me let me make one comment, a question I want to throw out here because I'm I read this and I read it twice, and um, because there's so much in here. Uh, and I would advise our listeners to go out and read it because it is a good article. And I thank our dear listener for uh, highlighting this for us to read. But here's my question, and I'm curious about yours and Adam's answer to this. How can the U.S. convince China that we will employ our nuclear weapons in this conflict if we need to? What actions do we need to do now to convince them that that is the fate that they are playing in toying with this Chi uh, Taiwan 
uh, uh, Taiwan, whatever you want to say, conflict. And the reason I say, conflict. yeah, and the reason I say that is exactly what's based on Curtis's answer. Because Curtis says a Taiwan invasion, we either destroy chip manufacturing Taiwan, for which much of the world is 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 dependent on, or we'll put it into the hands as a prize to China, and therefore bring about the same kind of upheaval if you believe that China is going to play in the marketplace the same way it plays in just about everything else. And so we have to convince them that, that those prizes are not theirs to be had. And I think the only way we do that is with the nuclear co- coercion at present. So I'd be interested in your answer. Let, let me read a, a paragraph from the article because I think it sort of addresses what you're talking about. So And I'm quoting, for the Chinese leadership to order an invasion of Taiwan, it would have to be confident it could withstand potential U.S. coercive nuclear threats. That confidence stems from credible deterrence of two things. The first is U.S. large-scale use of nuclear weapons against targets on the Chinese mainland. The second is deterrence of U.S. nuclear escalation sufficient for China to avoid losing what Thomas Schelling called, quote, a competition in risk-taking that could include one or more limited nuclear exchanges. And so when the Chinese make the decision to, you know, go after Taiwan, to try to invade Taiwan, they have come to the conclusion that we are not going to attack the Chinese homeland with nuclear weapons. And I think that's right. I think that's absolutely correct. And then secondly, that they can absorb limited nuclear strikes potentially against their amphibious forces or ships or, you know, whatever it may be. And so essentially, I think what Greg says that this decision calculus looks like, I think he's absolutely correct. And the problem I see for the United States is that the United States really doesn't have a credible, tactical, low-yield option. And people will say, well, you have the W76 Mod 2 that's your low-yield submarine-launched ballistic missile. And to be honest with you, the more I think about that that weapon, that warhead specifically, the more I think it was a mistake to have fielded it in the first place. Because if you think about a a ballistic missile submarine, an Ohio-class submarine that's going to, let's say, shoot one, maybe two of these at some military target, in the Straits of Taiwan, I don't think a president is ever going to give away the position of his of his Ohio-class submarine to use a W-76 Mod 2 to sink a ship or anything else. And if you think about it, that or flying, you know, nuclear-capable bombers with nuclear weapons from Australia— which that's so far out of the realm of anything we can possibly do right now, or you're going to have to fly them from the U.S. and tank them. Yeah, it's, yeah. Well, there were you know we're not putting there's no continuous bomber task force in Guam, and we know the Chinese are planning to attack it. I I just don't see the bomber option 
is a potentially good option. And therefore, and I don't think you're given the way we can, you know, AS anti-submarine warfare is today. I don't think you're going to give away your position in order for a tactical nuclear strike. I, I think you hold off to keep your strategic weapons on those deployed boats. And so therefore my premise is just, I don't see the situation where we have the credible force that will, you know, engage in a tactical, you know, low yield nuclear strike. And so therefore I think that the, the Chinese are asking the same questions I'm asking and I fear they'll come to the same conclusions. And, and and Curtis, before you answer, I just want to say, Adam, you used two words that I just want to highlight. Maybe Curtis will talk. You said limited nuclear use in China, which tells me we're limiting ourselves. And number two, Adam, you always go to the superior conventional force that the at least the disarmament community draws to and saying that's the fear that we would have if our nuclear cannot do cannot make it. So Curtis, maybe you you're going to highlight on those two things. But that, that I really gave a lot of thought to that question because that's what I walked away with. And I appreciate your answer there, Adam. Curtis. So I think that the uh, the same. Uh, well, first of all, uh, attacking the Chinese homeland changes the war. That's an act of escalation. Uh, right? It does. And so I we have, and that's the challenge here is that the tyranny of distance. Uh, asymmetrically benefits China, right? They're only a hundred miles ish from their target. They're what? I don't know, 10, 20,000 miles. I don't know from, uh, from us. It's a long ways away. And those are the same arguments that say why conventionally fighting this war will be just as difficult. And so we hear a lot about the idea that, well, we'll, we'll we're going to wage these battles from our allies and we're, and, 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 you know, launch attacks and things. It's doubtful to me that our allies um, are going to engage when they're going to be coercively threatened by this Chinese nuclear force. No first use promises uh, are going to go out the door, right? When they, when the real uh, uh, proverbial poop hits the fan here. And so you're going to, you know, the people of the Philippines, the people of Japan, are going to have to ask real hard questions of themselves. Are we willing, you know, Japan especially, are we willing to take another hit, right? And in and in this case, in in alliance with the United States. And so this is where I get to this challenge: is that we don't really have um, the right setup for this. And in, in my personal opinion, so Jim, you asked me, what does it take, uh, it, you know, to make this deterrence question work? And I think the question is, we we got to take the burden off of our shoulders. I've said this before on other things. We have to take this burden off of our shoulders because we are in we are in a lose lose situation here when it comes to Taiwan. If we choose not to fight and we surrender Taiwan, it will change. It will it will affect those those three things that we just mentioned, right? Our status as a superpower, um, the 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 economic the, the the global economy will suffer because China will own all of it. And um, uh, and then, of course, the international rules-based order will probably, if it doesn't collapse, will be severely uh, in- inhibited. And so the world will change forever in this one small uh, effort. If we choose to engage, it will be a bloody battle that will certainly escalate in one way or another. Um, because all of the war games that have been done in the more recent era have not really been very advantageous for us. 
And so we, we have to get ready to do the hard things here. And that is we've got to arm Taiwan. We've got to make this a Taiwan problem. If it is Americans that are in dropping nuclear weapons, whether they're on the 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 Chinese ships and, and amphibious craft that are coming aboard, it will be it will be an escalatory act of war viewed by the Chinese. But if the Taiwanese are doing it, it's their existential threat. They have nothing to lose. And so what we need to be doing is giving the Taiwanese um, the tools that they need to get this to do this fight on their own. Um, and to be able to take this the, the, the burden off of us and the allies out there and and do this. And the other question would be is, is what is the role of our allies in here? And, and we have worked very hard to convince our allies that they don't need nuclear weapons for themselves. And now we are going to ask them to engage in a potential nuclear war, and they are going to be standing there without their tutus on. And that is not very nice for us, I think, to have asked our friends to engage in this kind of conflict and not allow them to do the things they need to do. So we've got a couple of years, and a lot can happen, and a lot of messaging can happen. And I think it's time it's time to get aggressive and put the burden of fear back onto the Chinese. And as a side note, I would make it perfectly clear that a war with Taiwan is not going to be limited to Taiwan. It will include the South China Sea, and they will lose all of it. And if they find that to be part of the risk calculus, that way we can think twice. Yeah, I would also say, Curtis and Adam, one of the things that time buys you is the risk of the chip manufacturing in Taiwan to bring it back to the U.S. homeland or to or to our allies, if at all possible. Now, that hurts Taiwan. Yeah, that's why they're not going to do it. And I, I understand. It hurts Taiwan. But it does, I mean, you know, again, looking at it from a totally U.S. You know, uh, standpoint, it buys us and, and some of our allies who aren't in Taiwan uh, a breather from that problem. And it, it, again, it it this whole issue is something we've walked into over time and it's going to take time to walk out of if we're going to come out of a reasonable way, if, if China continues to be aggressive. And that's, that's the issue that I have that I just, I can't wrap my head around. So we are building new uh, chip facilities in the U S they're going back to Arizona, but they're not the kind of chips that they make. No, they are. They are all of that. It would never What's being built right now and the new facilities that are there could never meet the demand, the, the you know, the national, just the U.S. or the international demand. So, you know, this is one of the things that President Biden actually in the beginning of his administration worked on. And so those facilities are actually I mean, we we build the U.S. builds a lot of the machinery that then go into those AMDC factories in Taiwan. And so those factories are being built in the U.S. because of this very concern, but that capacity will never be sufficient to meet all of the de the demand. And I think largely for the reasons that, you know, you've said is that AMDC doesn't want to see its business essentially leave Taiwan Although, you know, the president of AMDC was educated in the U.S. and spent his early career in the U.S. as an engineer. 
So he's got longstanding ties to the U.S., but uh, so so there's you know there is a little bit of a good news story, but the majority of that manufacturing is still going to be in Taiwan. It's 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 still a persistent challenge. All right. So so let me let me ask a. Uh, another question here. So this article uh, that uh, that Greg writes, he never. Uh, there's, a, there's a call for this, you know, continuing to build up and get ready, get prepped. And there's this constant assumption that U.S. conventional forces are far superior uh, to the Chinese forces, um, and that may be over time, but maybe not initially. Um, and and I think we we we. Uh, endanger our our planning when we always want to assume that our allies or I'm sorry that our adversaries are not going to be as good as they could be um, we must never um, assume that uh, they are just terrible fighters uh, and things don't work uh, and the other thing I would say is that in this thing in this article he never brings up uh, the fact that we are already stressed. Um, by the resource sharing with for the Ukrainian conflict and now the Israeli conflict, this article was written in no in November in November of of twenty three. Uh, so the the Israeli war was already on, uh, and so um, that is an issue too. Because as we think about how we're trying to prepare for a war, a potential war with Taiwan, with, with Taiwan. And we know that preparation and resilience, according to the Biden administration, NPR is part of deterrence. It does not help if we don't have enough boom in our own inventory uh, in which to deter with, if that boom is going elsewhere or we're not able to produce enough of it fast enough or affordably for that matter. And so uh, we have to understand that while we're building things for everyone else, we still need to build things for ourselves. And uh, the the uh, the administration just recently put out a new a national strategy for the defense industrial um, uh, base, which I applaud uh, very much so. But I think we're about 10 years too late with this. Uh, yeah. And so we've got to do better. As I was looking at it and thinking through, you know, the article, and of course, you know, Greg calls for, you know, more capability, you know, conventional nuclear, because we, we've got to hold them at risk. But as I really think about it, I see one solution. And that one solution is, is a Taiwanese nuclear weapons program aided by the United States that is covert. And then once Taiwan has the capability, I, I, I was thinking about it. Do you use the Israeli model or do you use, you know, the Indian or Pakistani model? And that is where you go public. And I would probably keep it covert, but let the Chinese know we, we now have a nuclear capability uh, and that, you know, we will use it if you try to invade. And then I would build the offensive capability, you know, as the Taiwanese to attack. And then I would wait. And I, I might even, if I were the Taiwanese, and, you know, this is hard. It's easier said than done. You've got all of these islands along the Chinese coast, Kemoi, Matsu, and a whole bunch of others. I might give all that back to, to China and say, you know, here's, this is Taiwan back. 
but the Penghu Islands and Taiwan, they, they stay with us. And then the, the Chinese, as good communists, could, could rewrite history. And in the rewriting of history, they could remember that uh, Taiwan was really just a bunch of pirates and foreigners and therefore has no business being part of China. And, and then call it a day. Because, you know, that would that rewriting of history would be much, much closer to real history than what the Chinese have, you know, what the Chinese Communist Party have have said. And and, you know, with a nuclear armed Taiwan, you could help them, you know, remember, you know, the right history and uh, help them change their minds. And then they could get something out of it. You know, Peng Hu or uh, Kemoi or Matsu and... uh, Mm. The, the you know there's I mean there's little islands that are literally in the harbors of like Shimen and some of these other places that are right there on the coast. You know the folks that live there might not want it, but turn those over and let those folks move back to you know Taiwan proper. And and then the and maybe my it's a a pipe dream I'm I'm you know. Professor. Yeah, it doesn't seem to be yeah, working in the Ukraine. It's not working so well at all sure elsewhere. That's going to work in Taiwan. <laughs> I I agree. Um, I, I you know I think I think the way we solve the way we address this, you're not going to really solve this unless China, you know, steps back and says they're not going to bother with re- reunification, whatever you want to call that. Um, but um, I, I think I, I um, the renegade province is, is never is always going to be a thorn uh, in this Communist Party's side. And the only way we're going to have to that we're going to be able to prevent this is to make it so painful uh, or the risk being so painful that it is that that juice is not worth the squeeze, that I would rather live with the status quo and uh, and, and, you know, the, the you know, one China strategy that we have here, this political strategy that's existed since 79 uh, and, and continue to do this. I think what we ought to be doing is coalition building. Um, again, if we're going to have a conflict with China, we've got to divide up their resources. They, it, they, they need to understand it's going to be a multi-front war. And that is now is the time for, you know, Vietnam and Philippines and Malaysia and Indonesia and others to get out there and take their sovereignty back out of the South China Sea and um and and force a second front if you will that threat should be real um and should complicate uh ccp planning and therefore may make them hesitate um hesitation breeds caution caution we could breeds- also we could also threaten to start arming the tibetan liberation front <laughs> and and the uh and the right. east kurdistan liberation front you mean kurdistan Mongol- not kurdistan no, uh, Turkestan. Sorry, Turkestan. Oh, Turkestan. The East East Turkestan Liberation Front. Right. You know the the uh, Xinjiang province, and and say, hey, we'll we'll make this really really painful for you. Well, and again, we've got to figure out how we would decouple our economies because we cannot trade with them while we're at war yeah. with them. Is that really the plan? Is that is that really what we're going to do? And um, and and we need to be resilient here at home because they will attack us, and we need to figure out what does a massive cyber attack on this country mean as an act of war. In 2018, the Trump administration's NPR said that may warrant a nuclear response. That right. threat does not exist in the Biden administration, and so therefore they cannot deter. 
that kind of existential threat. And I'm telling you, a strongly worded letter uh, is not going to work. Economic sanctions against the the uh, second most uh, second largest economy in the world, and if you do it by purchase power parity, the largest economy in the world, they are not going to be affected by sanctions, at least not for the long term. And so, this idea that we're going to be able to uh, prevent escalation, I think, is really the best way to prevent escalation is to prevent this war. And you have to prevent this war by convincing uh, Xi Jinping that this juice is not worth the squeeze. Not only am I risking fighting Americans, but I'm risking fighting the Japanese, the Koreans, the Philippines, the Vietnamese, all of these folks at the same time, and all of my neighbors. Uh, and and one of the things that we could do also, if we don't want to put uh, uh, nukes in Taiwan, is, well, then let's put... American personnel, Australian personnel, British personnel, French personnel, Japanese personnel. Let's all put them on the island. They become the tripwire. And if you kill a bunch of Westerners, you're going to draw them into the fight. And I think Taiwan, China is not interested in having a fight, not only with the Indo-Pacific community, but when you bring in the European community, I think that's something they wouldn't want to do. All right. Well, we're going to have to end it here. Of course. Thanks, uh, Curtis. Thanks to you, Jim. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us on this episode of The Nids View. And thanks to you, listener, who sent that to us. We're going to keep your name out of it because uh, we didn't ask you if we could mention you. So thanks for sending that in. Hopefully the discussion met your your interest. And, of course, it probably we'll see <laughs> <laughs> So we'll see you on the next episode. And of course, as always, we want to remind you to think deterrence. Thank you for listening to The NIDS View. This show is produced under the NIDS Podcasting Network, a division of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. NIDS is a 501c3 organization dependent upon donations to provide this podcast and bring about awareness of the peacekeeping value of U.S. strength and our national deterrence. You can catch all of our podcasts or provide feedback at thinkdeterrence.com. I would like to thank our producer, Kimberly Charrington, our sponsors, and all the fantastic members of the National Institute for Deterrence Studies for making this podcast possible. Stay tuned next week for another exciting and informative The NIDS View.